Good morning. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, yes, you don't have to point it out, you know, now or later. I do have the reverse raccoon uh, eyes going on, but uh, that's kind of what happens when you spend three days on the motorcycle. So I peeled off from our Crossroads Cruisers trip uh, in order to be here this morning. The rest of them are, are still out on the road uh, today, so... Uh, I uh, hope they're safe as they're coming back. So if you're looking for a nice curvy road in the middle of Mark Twain Forest, I got just the thing for you. 160, boy, that's, that's got to be one of the best motorcycle roads in Missouri. Today, we've got quite the task in front of us with what it is that we're going to be talking about. In fact, it's a little bit, just a little bit tempting to go ahead and have the closing prayer and send us all home. Um, uh, but like I said, that's just a little temptation uh, because uh, this, this particular subject matter is a tough subject matter. And if you haven't seen it, look on the screen, look on your bulletin cover, and you'll see what it is. It's not an easy subject that we're dealing with today. Even though it's a subject that gets brought up in discussions fairly frequently, whether you be at work, whether you be in a small group, or whether you're just in your home, this is the kind of uh, discussion that does come up. But yet, having said that, I don't think that this is in the top 10 favorite subject list that anyone has. Uh, because it's just a, it's a rough subject to, to deal with. Whether you're a new believer or you've been a Christian for a long time, we all seem to struggle uh, with this subject. C.S. Lewis is a well-known Christian author um, and apologist. His works uh, continue with us today, uh, though he went on and went with the Lord a long time ago. Um, but C.S. Lewis said it like this, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell, if it lay in my power. But the reality of the matter is it didn't lay within his power any more than it lays within the power of any of us that are here. But you know, I'll throw one additional thought into this in in view of C.S. Lewis making a statement like that, which isn't a stretch of the imagination for any of us to kind of nod in agreement with that, most of the key teachings about hell come from the lips of Jesus. And this is the thing that sometimes we don't slow down enough to recognize. And when you open the pages of the Bible, the person that talks more about the subject of hell than anyone else in scripture is Jesus himself. You can't read this book without being confronted with the fact that Jesus believed in hell and he talked pretty frequently about it. Most of what we know about hell, we know because of the teachings of Jesus. And to add to that just a little bit more, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. Just let that sink in for a moment. He talked more about hell than he did heaven. He spent more time 
just to word that a little bit differently, he spent more time warning people about hell than he did inviting them to heaven. Some people, and this would be preachers included, avoid the topic of hell because it seems too harsh. Or perhaps they think that it will paint God in a negative light. And so from a combination of embarrassment and at the same time maybe trying to do God a favor, they downplay the subject of hell. But that's not the approach Jesus took. He never downplayed the subject. He never avoided it. Let me summarize for you a few things just to really get the ball rolling here. A few concepts that the Bible teaches us about hell. First of all, hell is an actual place. It's not just some kind of an imaginary uh, place that was cooked up in order to get people's attention. It is an actual place, and this is the way the Bible approaches it. It It originally was created for the devil and his angels. This is something that uh, Jesus made clear in Matthew chapter 25. This is the middle of the parable of the separating of the sheep and the goats and where Jesus is explaining that at the climax of the ages that everybody's going to be broken up into two groups, separated, and you're either going here or you're going there. There's only two categories. There's only two possible destinations. And in the middle of talking about all of that in a parable form, Jesus made that comment that, that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. Let me give you another passage where Jesus had quite a bit to say about hell, and, and perhaps there's quite a bit of insight that can be gained from this. This is only part of the passage, but it's the story about the rich man and Lazarus. And this is the way that story begins. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, it actually is much longer than that. And, you know, and if you want to study this and dive a little bit deeper into the topic, then you would want to go to that passage and certainly spend some time reading what that um, passage is telling us. I was very careful in the way I introduced that. I said, Jesus told a story about a rich man and Lazarus. And it was very tempting just to say what, you know, is halfway common for people to say. Jesus told a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. But the reality of the matter is we're not even sure that that is a parable. Because the scripture doesn't, doesn't use the word parable in reference to it, like is the case with most of the parables. And, and I'm not saying that there's no way that that's a parable. It might be a parable. But if it is a parable, it is a unique parable in that it is the only parable that is found in the Bible where a proper name is actually used, the name Lazarus. 
You don't see that in any other parable. So maybe it is a parable. But then again, maybe it's just a slice of reality that Jesus actually gave a glimpse of a true story of somebody named Lazarus and a rich fella and what ended up happening. But when you look in that passage, you see a couple of things. You see the separation. You see uh, it talks about uh, torment, you know, using a word like that. Um, it, it also throws in this uh, uh, thought that the rich man who went to hell, that he was able to be aware and see what he missed out on. Now, is that actually a part of hell? Well, that's a good discussion question for your small group, you know, or around the lunch table later today. Is that a part of what hell entails? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know for sure. I don't have the answer on that. But it is part of what we see in that passage. But, but what we're seeing here in some of these stories and parables that Jesus told is that uh, he's driving home the point that it is an actual place. What is more, it is a horrible place. There's a number of different words and phrases that are used in reference to hell. Um, phrases like blackest darkness, gnashing of teeth, lake of fire, agony, just to mention a few. Hell at its very core is the worst possible place in existence. I, I think that's pretty much the bottom line. A place eternally apart from God. Regardless of how terrifying uh, horror movie depictions try to make it look, they pale in comparison to what reality actually holds as far as hell is concerned. This, I think, explains why Jesus used this particular word fairly frequently the vast majority of times that it's found in the New Testament, it comes from Jesus. Eleven times he used the word Gehenna in reference to hell. Now, that word doesn't mean a great deal to us, but the people that lived in and around Jerusalem, oh, they knew full well what that word um, communicated. Gehenna was a valley on the south side of Jerusalem, and, and there was quite the, the historical story behind this particular valley. Hundreds of years earlier, back during the reign of uh, King Ahaz, who sat on the throne there in Jerusalem, um, he had brought back from some of the pagan uh, neighboring countries, uh, he had brought back uh, various forms of idolatry, you know, the idols and the altars and stuff like that, and, and tried to replicate some of that in and around Jerusalem. And among all of that is he introduced Moloch worship, you know, to Israel. Moloch worship was, was uh, some of the most disgusting, despicable type of uh, forms of idolatry that existed. And not only did Ahaz do that, but his grandson Manasseh took it and took it to a whole nother level. I'm talking about back in like uh, 700 B.C., 
back in that era of time is when this was happening. And Moloch worship, besides having an altar, the actual idol itself was a tall metallic um, um, idol that was hollow and they would build a fire in the base of it and they would get it kind of a glow, glowing um, hot, um, searing hot, and then they would take the actual step of uh, worship um, in that form of pagan idolatry and offer newborn babies on the altar. And it was sacrificing human babies on this. And this is what Ahaz brought to Israel. This is what his grandson Manasseh, he, he not only emphasized, but he kind of doubled up on as far as uh, the frequency and, and the involvement of Israel being involved in that kind of worship. Well, then two generations later, Manasseh's grandson a young fellow by the name of Josiah, he came to the throne. And one of the first things that he did was he started cleaning house. And he demolished all of those altars. He rid Israel of, of that, all of that kind of idolatry. And because of all of the kinds of sacrifices and everything that were involved in, in the worship of Moloch, there in the Gehenna Valley, is Josiah decided to turn that valley into a dump. And we're now talking about, about the year 600 B.C. And so Gehenna turned, was turned into a dump. This is where people started dumping their garbage. This is where people would throw carcasses. If you had an animal carcass you needed to get rid of, this is where you took it. This is where human corpses were thrown. If there wasn't anybody to claim the body. If someone died and there were no relatives or anything around, this is where it would go. Um, Roman crucifixions at a later time were kind of introduced to, to the picture there. And, and if no one took these criminals and claimed them and gave them a decent burial, this is where those bodies ended up, was in Gehenna, the ones at least that were crucified in and around Jerusalem. And so Gehenna became this kind of a dump that ancient writings indicate there was a putrid smell associated with it. And it was like 24-7, there were smoldering fires that were going on there. And that, that had kind of become the, the thing back in the 6th century B.C. And for 600 years, basically, this was the dump. And so you can just imagine the kind of condition and everything it was in when Jesus appears on the scene. And he's trying to talk about hell. And he decides this is a good beginning point to use references to Gehenna. It's hard to describe something that people have never experienced. So Jesus started with something that they could relate to. You know, hell is such a horrible place that, that sometimes, you know, when you're reading about it or when you're talking about it, you just really don't know what to do about it or how to react to it, and, and it can, it can kind of make you squirm a little bit. And so sometimes in those moments when you're talking about such an unpleasant topic, um, you, you end up just kind of making jokes about it. Mark Twain was one who made a number of different jokes about hell. Uh, several one-liners especially. Here's one of his. I'll take heaven for the climate and hell for the society. 
You've probably heard, you know, people say something like that. Perhaps maybe even you did at one particular point in time in your life. You, you'd talk about, well, I suppose I'll go to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. Or that's where all the action, the partying is. You know, otherwise you just be in a boring setting of worshiping with a harp all the time. You know, you, you hear people kind of joke about this kind of stuff. And I think part of the reason that, that people do that is because they don't really know what to do or what to say about it. I don't um, follow cartoons much, but uh, um, whenever I did, it, it was one particular cartoon that I enjoyed because it's, I guess it's just a little bit twisted, a little bit odd. And so that, that, that kind of fit you know, with my humor, and then they quit doing it, so, so then I had no cartoons to follow, but I'm talking about the far side cartoons, and you know, the far side, nothing's off limits, you know, it'll, it'll poke fun at pretty much anything, and, and, uh, and sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't get it, that's the nature of the far side cartoons, but, uh, the Far Side had a number of different cartoons that they had regarding hell, and, and I kind of screened and only picked two of them that I thought were suitable for Sunday morning. But uh, here is one of them. It shows several demons like in this office, and on the table in front of them, they got a suggestion box, and you can tell that they're having a, a blast laughing at the suggestions. Through the door window, you see people that are in hell. And it's kind of playing off that whole thing that uh, you probably have been in a workplace environment before that had a suggestion box. And, of course, the talk is, yeah, but what do they ever do with these suggestions? You know, no one takes this stuff seriously, right? So, and their far side took that and ran with it. And so, so uh, yeah, it, it actually is kind of humorous in a twisted way. Here's, here's another one. You know, whenever you went to grandma's house, she always had some kind of an inspirational cross stitch or something hanging on the wall. And uh, here you have this demon in hell and, and what the plaque that's hanging next to his head says, uh, today is the first day of the rest of your life. You know, that doesn't hold near the inspiration that it does when it's hanging in grandma's house, Right. You know, it's like, uh, okay, yeah, that really isn't that funny. But, you know, we don't know what to do with hell sometimes because it is such an uncomfortable topic. It is a real place, and it is a horrible place. But what we also see in the Bible, and this is a very important point for us to take home, take to heart, is that hell is an avoidable place. And that clearly is communicated in Scripture. This ultimately is what, what this book is all about. I don't talk about politicians very often, but uh, one, one of the, the old politician stories that, that I've used um, a couple of times you know, over the years involved uh, a guy named Calvin Coolidge. A hundred years ago, Calvin Coolidge was the vice president of the United States. And so back in the 1920s, um, he served in that capacity, and he kind of had a reputation with people. He was described as being a man who did very little, and he said even less. And uh, 
Um, he enjoyed his time as vice president. In his own words, he described it uh, in this fashion as to why he enjoyed it so much, is that being vice president never interfered with his mandatory 11 hours of sleep each day. <laughs> One day, Coolidge was presiding over the Senate, and uh, there was a debate that was going on on the floor, and one senator uh, in anger lashed out at another senator and told him with a loud voice to go straight to hell. And uh, the, the senator on the other end of that comment, who was offended, he, he uh, complained to Coolidge because Coolidge was the presiding officer. And uh, Coolidge was just kind of sitting back in his chair and his typical posture, and he kind of sat up a little bit. He had been thumbing through a book, and he sat up and he said this in response, I've been looking through the rule book, you don't have to go. <laughs> and, uh, and that's good, that was a good response. But the same thing is true of everyone in this room today. You don't have to go. Same thing is true for everyone that's watching this online. You don't have to go. And that's why this is called good news. Is because that really is the bottom line when it comes to the subject of hell. You don't have to go. However horrible hell may be, the good news is you don't have to go there. As a matter of fact, God doesn't want you to go there. There's a number of passages that help drive that home. Peter, in his second letter that he wrote to scattered Christians, he said this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish or to go to hell, but everyone to come to repentance. Paul said something along those same lines when he was writing to the young preacher Timothy. Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, this is what God wants. It's important that we understand when we're talking about this subject and, and when we're dealing with the question that serves as the title of today's message, it's important that we get this, that no one goes to hell because God wants him to go. No one goes to hell because God wants him or her to go. That's, that's not how it works. Hell is not some eternal torture chamber that God has constructed to inflict pain on people that he doesn't like. That's not what hell is. Hell is simply a place where God is not. His goodness is not there. His holiness is not there. Hell, simply put, is the absence of God. Since God is the source of all good things, there will be no good things if God is not there. And that's hell. God is a God of love. And we cherish that, that thought, that concept, that God is a God of love. And he created us to love. And that's the thing about love. It involves having a choice. If we have no capacity for choice, then there can be no love. 
Forced love is a contradiction in terms. If God created you and he wired you up in a way where you would love and you had no choice in the matter, but this is what you would automatically do, then you basically would be nothing more than a robot. You would be doing what you're programmed to do, and that would not be love anymore because you're just doing what you've been wired to do. What makes it love is that you have a choice in the matter, whether you do it or not. This has everything to do with where we stand with God. We have a choice in it all. Again, C.S. Lewis, in regards to some of this thinking, he says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. There's a lot of truth in that statement. In that sense, hell is a continual reminder that God respects human choices. He will not force people to love him, much less force people to live for him. God doesn't do that. It's a choice that we have. When the Bible talks about God being a God of love, you know, part of what happens is in, in our reaction to that and our desire to embrace that because that's music to our ears. But part of what happens in all of that is when the problem starts surfacing that we equate love with tolerance, period. That if God is a God of love, then that means God will tolerate whatever life I choose to live. However, whatever choices I make in life, God's just going to look the other way. He's just going to brush it aside. He's going to sweep it underneath the rug because God is a God of love, and that's what love does. There's a real problem with that because, yes, God is a God of love, but the Bible communicates loudly and clearly to us that God is a just God. And God is a holy God. And so the very idea that, well, God can just look the other way. He can brush something under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. If he were to do that, God would cease to be God. He would no longer be God anymore. Because he would not be holy. He would not be just. Sin is something that has to be dealt with. And that's what the holiness of God demands. The fact that God is just, that's what it requires. But again, you know, we look at that and our question is, if God is a loving God, then why doesn't he do something about all of this? And that is a reasonable question. And there is a clear answer to that. He has. He has done something about this. That's the whole reason Jesus came. The whole thing that we reflect on and we celebrate, not just at Christmas time, but throughout the year. The whole idea that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, temporarily set aside his glory in heaven and took on human flesh and came to earth in the form of a vulnerable little baby. And he came for the purpose of ultimately dying for us. 
That's what all this was about. Jesus said it like this in what represents the most memorized verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's the same as saying going to hell. Whoever believes in him should not go to hell but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, that's the bottom line as to why Jesus came into the world to begin with. It's so that we don't go to hell. We don't have to go to hell. We can be saved, saved, saved from hell through Jesus. John picks up on this later on in his first letter in 1 John 3.16. He says it like this. There is now, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So you talk about cherishing and clinging to the love of the Lord. That's exactly what John's talking about here. Love doesn't compel God to look the other way and sweep it under the rug because God can't do that. But what God can do is he can sacrifice himself. Something totally unthinkable, but that's exactly what he did in what happened with Jesus Christ when he went to the cross on our behalf. You see, Jesus came. Jesus came into this world. He came into this world to warn us And that's why he is the person represented in the pages of Scripture that talk more about the subject of hell than anyone else. He came to warn us. But he also came to pay the price necessary to free us from our sin and the consequences of our sin. This is why Jesus came. That's what love looks like. And that's why we call him Savior. Because he saved us from an eternity of being separated from God. That's what he saved us from. Hell is not a pleasant topic. Not at all. But God provided the solution and his name is Jesus. People oftentimes think that hell is some kind of a blemish on God's love. But the Bible presents it as the opposite. Hell magnifies for us the love of God and showing how far God was willing to go and how much he went through for us to save us from it. Yeah, sometimes we think that uh, we, we think that that we're doing God a favor by softening the subject of hell. Whenever the subject of hell comes on, we try to, to change the subject or we try to make light of it or to, to say you know something just to take the spotlight off of it or to, if possible, avoid, avoid it entirely. But in actuality, what, what we're doing in part is we're diminishing the greatness of God. Because when you take a serious look at hell... It's then that you can begin to appreciate how great God really is. That he did 
what only he could do to save us from hell. No one else was qualified to do that because we've all missed the mark. We've all contributed to the problem. We've all sinned. But Jesus came and he lived the life that that we unsuccessfully lived. He never, ever sinned. It qualified him to voluntarily offer the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf to be able to free us from the consequences of our sin. During our time of communion, that's a big part of what we're focusing on, right? When we take the bread and we eat the bread, we're thinking about the body of Jesus that he had taken upon himself when he stepped out of heaven and he stepped into this realm. He took on human flesh. And so we eat the bread and we think of the body that was nailed to that cross. When we take the cup and we drink from that, we're we're reflecting on the blood of Jesus that was shed as he was crowned and as he was crucified, as he was crowned with those thorns, and as he was crucified, nailed to that cross. So during our time of communion, we, we reflect on the price that Jesus willingly paid on our behalf. But I want to encourage you today to do one additional thing. And so I want to close out with this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, which means we are his representatives in this world. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, I bolded and underlined that to get your attention on that. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That word implore, if you were to look in the Bible that you brought with you or that's on your phone, if you were to look at the translation that you have, you will either see the word implore or you will see the word beg or you'll see the word plead. It's a pretty intense word and for good reason. What's at stake? And what this passage is saying is that is that as a church, we have been ordained by God to be on a rescue mission. Okay, so, so for, for many of us that are listening to this right now, at some point in time in our life, we made that all-important decision, and in faith, we embraced Jesus as our Savior, and, and his death on the cross became the substitute, which was, made it possible for us to be freed from our sin and the consequences of our sin. But why is it that we weren't just delivered up to heaven at that moment in time? Why are we going through all of this still living out our lives? It's because we are on a God-ordained mission to be his representatives in this world and to beg, to implore, 
to plead with the people in our sphere of influence, the people we work with, our extended family members, people in our neighborhoods, to get that all-important message out there that there is a solution, there is a Savior, and his name is Jesus. So yeah, during this time, we take the bread and we eat it in the cup and we drink it. And we reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made for each one of us. But might we also allow the Lord to challenge us in realizing he's still got a job for us to do. Because there's a lot at stake. And there's a lot of people that still haven't dealt with the issue at hand. And we can be a part of helping them do just that. We've got the good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your love for us and the incredible sacrifice that was made in our behalf. And, and it's easy as we, um, week by week, month by month, as believers, it's easy for us to kind of slip into a mode where, where we kind of semi-take all that for granted. Forgive us, Lord, for doing that. And help, help make it real, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds. So that we don't just go through the motions of doing what we're doing when we come together like this but that it's something that's in the forefront of our mind and it's coming from our hearts that are filled with gratitude. But Lord, I also pray in view of what we just looked at in this last passage, that your spirit will use each one of us. Each one of us have a circle of friends and acquaintances. And Lord, help us through the prompting and the conviction of your spirit to realize we've got a role to play here. We've got an important job to do. We can't force anybody, but we can sure at least give them the chance to make that all-important decision of seeing Jesus as their Savior. Thank you, Lord, for saving us and for calling us into your service. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.